Um, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's wonderful to be here with you on uh, this Good Friday. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name's Matt. Um, I used to be a regular here at Bagara a few years ago. Um, I'm currently down in Brisbane studying at Bible College. Uh, so it's lovely to be back up visiting with you all, to get to spend Easter here with you, uh, and to get to listen to and think about this Easter story together. We'll be looking at part one of the Easter story today and part two on Sunday morning at Nielsen Park, so I hope you can join us then to hear the ending. Uh, And as you've just heard read out, we're looking at John's account of the Easter story. Each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they all record this story, but they all do it with slightly different styles. Mark is the vivid storyteller, punchy and action-packed. Matthew is the big-picture investigative reporter, drawing all the connections, putting the pieces together. Luke is the careful historian, detail-oriented, measured. John is a bit different. John wrote his gospel towards the end of his life when he was an old man. And really, it's his memoirs as he reflects back over his own memories and experiences of his time with a man he knew well and lived with and traveled with his friend and teacher, Jesus of Nazareth. His writing is full of beautiful, poetic language, and it paints a vivid, intimate picture of what John was there to be a part of. John once asked his audience to feel what it was like to be there, to see it all happening firsthand. And he also wants us to understand the significance of what happened that he didn't quite get at the time, but in looking back, he now sees clearly. Because Jesus wasn't just John's teacher and friend. John wants us to see that Jesus is king, the one with ultimate authority over the whole world. And it's here in the Easter story, in chapter 19, as Jesus is killed, that John really drives this point home. He wants us, the audience, to see clearly that Jesus is king and to understand that this is wonderfully good news for us. Because it's as we come to the cross and recognize Jesus' authority as king that we can receive his generosity and find rest in his victory. So come with me into the story, into John's story of Jesus' death. Uh, We're jumping in at chapter 19, which is halfway through Jesus' uh, questioning before Pilate, uh, the Roman governor. The night before that, Thursday night, after he'd eaten the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives, just to the east of Jerusalem. Uh, There, Judas Iscariot handed him over to the Jewish authorities. They arrested him. They brought him first for questioning before Annas, the old high priest, and then before Caiaphas, the current high priest, and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. They held their own trial in the middle of the night. They quickly found him guilty. And then they brought him to the Roman authority, Pilate, early on Friday morning in order to get him executed. And in the interaction that follows, the question hanging over the whole scene is, who has the authority here? The Jewish leaders are trying to pressure Pilate into killing Jesus because they feel their own power being threatened as Jesus grows in popularity and influence. Pilate is trying to assert his own authority and remind the Jewish leaders that they're under Rome's control. Jesus, at first glance, appears to be little more than a helpless pawn in the power struggle of political games and manipulation between the local authorities and the regional superpower. At the start of chapter 19, the Roman soldiers mock Jesus as a pretend king. 
They dress him up in a robe, put a painful crown of thorns on his head. They taunt him with sarcastic words and slap him in the face. Then he's presented back to the Jewish authorities as a symbol of Roman dominance. This is your king? This beaten, bloodied, pitiful man? And as they cry out for Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate mocks them as he tells them to do it themselves, knowing full well that they can't legally execute anyone. He's rubbing it in their faces that they need to come groveling to the Roman authority to have their own laws enforced. He wants them to feel their subjugation and to know the truth of the fact that this pathetic parody of a king is the closest thing to their own king they're going to get. But the Jewish authorities have their own power. They've got influence over the people, and they can make Pilate's life very uncomfortable, especially during Passover season when the city is overflowing with Jewish pilgrims. If they stir up the crowds, things could get very nasty very quickly, and Pilate doesn't want to be seen as the governor who couldn't control his people. So in the end, he gives them what they want, but he holds Jesus long enough to get the Jewish leaders to admit some level of defeat. In the end, the thing that gets him to release Jesus is when they say, we have no king but Caesar, in verse 15. So in this bit of power struggle, the Jewish authorities resort to using Jesus' claim of kingship to pressure Pilate into executing him. And before he gives in, Pilate throws it back in their faces to remind them who's boss. They have no king but Caesar. Now, to all appearances here, Jesus is just an unfortunate, helpless bystander caught up in the political struggles of the rich and powerful. But John wants us to see that there is more going on than meets the eye. You see, back when the Jewish authorities handed him over to Pilate, they thought they were doing so because they needed Roman authority to execute someone, and they figured they could pressure Pilate into giving them what they wanted. But in verse 32, chapter 18, John tells us, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. The reason he gets turned over to the Romans for execution wasn't because the Jewish leaders had control of Jesus ultimately, It's, in fact, to fulfill what Jesus had said. And when Pilate questions Jesus, and Jesus doesn't give him the answer he wants, Pilate tries to intimidate him with his own authority. So look with me at verse 9, chapter 19. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Pilate's trying to assert his authority over Jesus. You'd better answer me. I can have you killed. But Jesus calmly responds in verse 11, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Pilate thinks he's got the power, and he wants to make sure Jesus and the Jewish authorities know it. But the truth is, whatever power Pilate has It's only because God has allowed him to have it. Now, that doesn't absolve him of any responsibility. Both him and the Jewish leaders who gave Jesus over to Pilate are guilty before God for their actions. But throughout this whole scene, there's this layer of irony going on. The Jewish leaders pretext for execution, Pilate and the soldiers' mockery, even the sign that Pilate places on the cross, each one is more true than they realize. He really is the king of the Jews. This is all happening according to Phil, what he said must happen under his own father's sovereign rule. 
Everyone fails to recognize the authority of Jesus, and instead they treat him as guilty. But in reality, they are the truly guilty ones before God. So no one is seeing Jesus clearly. The Jewish authorities and Pilate and his soldiers, they're all blinded by different things that stop them from recognizing Jesus' authority. The Jewish leaders are afraid of the threat that Jesus poses to their comfortable status quo. So instead of submitting to him, they see him as a problem to be dealt with. Pilate uses Jesus as a bargaining chip to forward his own political goals. Under pressure from the crowd, he clings fiercely to his own sense of control and self-importance. Ultimately, both the Jewish leaders and Pilate are so caught up in trying to assert their own dominance that they miss the reality of who Jesus is, and they refuse to see that he has the real authority. They fail to recognize the truth that Jesus is king. So as we come to the Easter story and consider Jesus, we need to be careful to ask ourselves this question. Am I seeing Jesus clearly or am I blinded by something else? Is there something that's getting in the way of me recognizing Jesus' authority in my life? Maybe the current circumstances are so comfortable that recognizing Jesus' authority seems like it would risk upsetting the good life that I enjoy. Maybe my sense of independence and self-reliance is so controlling that I refuse to consider submitting myself to anyone else. Maybe the pressure to fit in and go with those around me is so strong that I won't recognize Jesus for fear of looking dumb or being the odd one out. Or maybe Jesus' authority is standing in the way of something that I really want, so I'll conveniently ignore it to get what I'm after. The truth is... We cannot play power games with Jesus. However important we think we are, however much we want to be in control of our own lives, our own goals, our own destinies, the reality is we are not in control. We can act like the self-righteous child arguing the unfairness of an imposed bedtime, but in the end, we must either recognize Jesus' authority or face the consequences. And this can be hard. Because recognizing Jesus' authority over us feels threatening. It can feel like putting ourselves in a vulnerable position. If you've ever had a manipulative boss or a mean teacher or a harsh parent, then maybe you know what it feels like to be under the authority of someone who doesn't treat you well. So we need to ask the question, what kind of king is Jesus? And how does he use his authority? Is he a king we can trust? As we continue in the Easter story, I want to point us to two things that Jesus does with his authority that are really good news for us and show us how trustworthy he is. The first is that he provides generously. Now, you can see this illustrated in verses 26 and 27 in the conversation with his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John's way of referring to himself, by the way. Verse 26 When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. So as he's hanging on the cross in agony, literally dying, Jesus is looking to provide for his mum. As the eldest son of a widow, he would have been the one to to look after her, and now he is dying. So he puts things in place to make sure that she's taken care of. 
but it goes much deeper than simple provision of care. Because if he wanted to, he could just as easily get down off the cross and take care of her himself. What he's saying is that his dying on the cross willingly is the greatest expression of care and provision he can give. He's been speaking about this all through John's Gospel. So, for example, in chapter 6, he said to the crowd, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Or in chapter 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And a few verses later, the reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. This command I received from my Father. This is how Jesus uses his authority as God's chosen king. He gives his body in death for the life of the world. He lays down his own life for his sheep, his people. He does this as the perfect sacrifice which takes away sin. As John the Baptist said at the beginning of John's gospel, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus uses his authority to provide forgiveness and eternal life by willingly going to the cross and dying for our sins. He is a king who provides generously. So for us to recognize Jesus' authority means firstly that we need to receive his generosity. We need to gratefully take what he graciously provides. But his provision doesn't always take the form that we expect. And I think we can see two different examples of, of this in the story, one negative and one positive. The first one, the negative one, is the soldiers who steal Jesus' clothing. They have no regard for Jesus. They simply see him as a means to an end. His death is an opportunity for their self-enrichment. They divide up his clothes between them, and each goes home a little bit richer. I think this can sometimes be our attitude toward Jesus. We see him as a convenient way of getting what we want. As long as he provides the things that I'm looking for and doesn't get in the way of my personal goals, then Jesus is fine with me. But as soon as he prevails, he fails to provide what's on my wish list, well, then faith takes a back seat, and I've got to take matters into my own hands. If God doesn't provide the financial success that I want, will I still prioritize the generosity to others that he says reflects his generosity to a stingy world, or will I hold tightly to what I can keep for myself? If God doesn't provide the relationship satisfaction I'm looking for, will I prioritize the faithful love in my marriage that he says reflects his faithful love for a fickle world, or will I go looking for satisfaction somewhere else? If God doesn't provide the good health that I always assumed I would have, will I prioritize the joyful contentment in God that he says reflects his joyful sufficiency to a grumbling world? Or will I allow bitterness and complaining to grow? God doesn't always provide what we want according to our own priorities. So the question is, will you ignore him and go after what you want like the soldiers? Or will you accept what he gives you? What do you think Mary wanted in that moment? I think what Mary wanted was her son back. 
I think she wanted him down from the cross, not suffering and dying a horrible public death. I think John wanted the same for his beloved friend and teacher. Yet that isn't what Jesus provided for them. In his generosity, he gave them to each other as family to take care of one another. Because in not coming down off the cross, he was providing a far more generous gift, his own life, so that they and we might have forgiveness and eternal life with him. That might not feel so pressing or important as what you long for, but dear friends, it is so much better for us that Jesus generously gives his life for ours than if he were to give us what we wanted. We must humble ourselves to receive what our king generously gives us. His providing for his mum shows his caring and generous heart in a tangible way. But Jesus' great act of generosity is in giving up his life for us by staying on the cross. This is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus gives us the life that we need that we cannot earn for ourselves. So will you recognize his authority by receiving his generosity? The second thing Jesus does with his authority is he achieves victory. Though the Jewish leaders thought they'd won the day, having their opponent killed, the truth is that Jesus' death is his great moment of triumph. All through this section, you can see references to Jesus' death fulfilling the scriptures. First, the soldiers who take his clothing in reference to Psalm 22. Then Jesus taking a drink of the sour wine in reference to Psalm 69. And then his swift death, meaning no broken bones, but instead a stab from a spear in reference to Exodus 12, Numbers 9, Psalm 34, Zechariah 12. John is making sure to point out this string of scripture fulfillments because contrary to all appearances, Jesus' death is actually going according to God's sovereign plan. Jesus is doing what he came to do. And as he gives up his life in verse 30, he says, it is finished. That's not a whimper of relief. That's Jesus' cry of victory. In fact, you could just about translate that phrase as mission accomplished. In persevering obediently to the end, Jesus has achieved his goal and won the victory he came to win. In giving up his life as a sacrifice on behalf of his people, the weight of sin is lifted and the enemy is left with nothing to threaten God's people. Paul puts this beautifully in his letter to the Colossians. In in chapter 2, verse 13, he writes this. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is Jesus' moment of victory. He removes the sin of his people and so removes any ground of accusation the devil has to level against us. Though on the surface it appears that that Jesus is held up as a powerless public spectacle, as he's executed, in reality, it is Satan who is disarmed and humiliated at the cross. In going freely to the cross, Jesus wins the ultimate victory. And what that means for us is we can rest in Jesus' victory. 
He has done all that needs doing and has won the decisive battle. Our role is to hold firmly to the victory that Jesus has won and not act as though Satan had any weapon to threaten us. Because even though he is defeated, Satan will still try to lie and manipulate and bring you down with him. He will use whatever means he can to convince you that Jesus' death is not good news for you. He will tell you that Jesus could never really accept, accept someone like you, someone who's done and said and thought the things you have. He will tell you that you don't need Jesus to win for you because you're strong and can win on your own and it's lazy and cowardly to let someone else fight for you. He will tell you that Jesus gets you part of the way there, but the rest is up to you and really you're never going to make it, so you might as well give up now. Satan will tell you all kinds of lies to lead you away from resting in Jesus' victory at the cross. Dear friends, don't listen to him. As we find rest in Jesus' victory, we realize it isn't up to us to be good enough for God or to justify our own existence. We realize it's uh, in our weakness that God's strength shines through and that entrusting ourselves to him is neither cowardly nor lazy, but honest and wise. We realize that our ultimate assurance of making it to the end is found in God's utterly reliable generosity to us not in our own strength of will. This is what it means to rest in Jesus' victory. Now, of course, Jesus' death is not the end of the Easter story. The full measure of Jesus' authority, generosity, and victory continue to be spelled out in chapter 20, and we'll be digging into that on Sunday morning. But as you celebrate this Good Friday, as you mourn this Good Friday... I want you to remember what, the, what makes the Easter story such good news. It is the reality that Jesus is king. John was there to see it happen, and he's written it down for us to see and believe. He tells us that in verse 35, where he says, speaking about himself, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. The purpose of the Easter story is so that you might see and believe the truth that Jesus is king. So dear friends, will you recognize Jesus' authority? Will you receive his generosity? Will you rest in his victory? I hope that you will. Let's pray for that now. Dear Father,